Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to a podcast that we're calling Living Water. And this season, we're taking the concept of water and looking at it as a lens through which we can see all the stories of the Bible. And it's been a remarkable experiment. We're beginning to meet old friends in a new way. We're beginning to see stories that we've known uh, in a way that might be fresh, but we're also seeing stories that we've never heard before. And I hope that that's what will happen today. You know, speaking of the Bible and the Gospels in particular, I like to say that the Gospels are not newspaper reporting. They're not merely uh, flat retellings of a story, but rather they're told with artistry and shape. And Luke's Gospel in particular is told a, a specific way in that the last the last chapters of the Gospel are a long journey to Jerusalem and a cross that awaits, which means that the mood of the story shifts. Jesus is now leaving the safety of his home in Galilee uh, to the enemies of Jerusalem. And in this last part of the gospel, uh, the enemies are encircling, the miracles are few, the writing is tense, the stories are even a little more dark. In Luke chapter 9, 57, people are gathering around Jesus. They want to continue to follow him, but he's already trying to tell them that the shine is being knocked off the ministry, that there are dark clouds uh, on the horizon. And this is what he says. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning with the 57th verse. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their own dead. Seems pretty harsh from Jesus, even though he is heading into this tense last chapter of his life. It seems harsh. It seems unnecessarily mean. And to learn the burial customs of the Hebrews living in the world of Jesus, which is really what we're going to talk about today. If we know how they bury, we'll know what Jesus was saying. In a world that is hot and water stressed, a proper burial is very, very important. Some 600 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, and certainly in a cranky mood, I might add, speaking of cranky moods in the Bible, would say this about the king Jehoiakim of Judah. It was, a, it was a prediction that was pretty dire. It goes like this. This is Jeremiah twenty two eighteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, Lord, or alas, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey, he should be buried, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. What we see here is that not being buried was the worst thing anyone could imagine. There was a garbage dump right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It was a place where this would happen often. People were thrown away just like the trash, and fires would burn uh, 24-7, right, uh, all throughout the year. The dump was called Gehenna, which is where we get the idea of hell, and that would be hell for them. No, the ideal was to die like wise King Solomon, who at the end of a good, long, and wise reign, were told in 1 Kings 11 that he, quote, slept with his ancestors. That's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be buried with your family, and you wanted to sleep 
with you people. So how do they do it? Well, the first books of the Bible spell this out pretty clearly how you're supposed to do it. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says that a burial should happen within 24 hours. So you got to put them in the tomb pretty quick. And as for tombs, these were caves all over Israel that you can see today. The, the rock over there is porous limestone and porous basalt. And so caves dot the side of any mountainside and any cave can be a tomb. And because bodies were seen as something unclean, there would be a time when those even doing the burying in the cave were considered unclean. You can read all about this in Numbers 19 if you're really curious. It kind of like being in a quarantine, and you were only able to remedy this removal from everyone after touching a body and being rendered unclean. You could actually go back to your family after being washed by water. So here's a little more water in the Bible for you. And while this burial place would be simple and not ostentatious at all, I mean, it's just a cave, and any cave can be a tomb, they would whitewash the entrance so that anyone walking by wouldn't stumble past and go into it. This is why Jesus would find tombs to be a handy metaphor for his political opponents. It's all starting to make sense now when we live into the world of Jesus and we see their burial customs. In Matthew 23, verse 27, this is what he has to say about his enemies. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they're full of bones of all the dead and all kinds of filth. So you on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, so far so good, right? Any cave can be a tomb, put them in the tomb pretty quick, but that's just part one. A year later, you go back. Here's where we're going to start to understand the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Before the exile, some 600 years before Jesus' birth, before the exile to Babylon, what you would do is go back to the cave and sweep the bones into a shaft in the middle. This is what it means to be gathered unto your ancestors. After the exile, they began to have an idea of themselves as individuals before God, so they would put these bones into a box known as an ossuary. So here's why Jesus said what he did. First, let me go bury my father, as this would-be disciple would say to him, simply meant that he was doing something that he could put off. He didn't have to do that right away. Part one burial had already happened. He merely had to go back and sweep the bones. And Jesus is trying to say that discipleship was an immediate responsibility at this point of the story. There was no more waiting. There was no more time to, to procrastinate, no more time to put it off. Rather, it was a time to get into the game, an immediacy, if you will, to Jesus' call to follow. Now we can understand that he wasn't being harsh or cruel, but rather this is something the man could do later. Still, there's something deeper here, pardon the pun, uh, with regards to burial. In the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, there are sarcophagi, lots of stuff like this, lots of Egyptian sarcophagi, uh, the boxes containing mummies, but there are also Philistine sarcophagi that look remarkably Egyptian. They, they look Egyptian because the, because the Philistines wanted to be Egyptian. They were under the influence of that great water dynasty just to the south of them, Egypt. And so to be Egyptian was aspirational. They took on Egyptian clothes, they took on Egyptian looks, and they took on Egyptian religion. The Hebrews, in their burial practices and beyond, were studiously not Egyptian. So what does it mean to be Egyptian? Well, I've got my own story. A few weeks ago, I took a quick trip to Chicago with some friends, and 
I got up early on a Sunday morning alone and visited the Field Museum looking for their display on Egyptian burial practices. It's a remarkable display. At the turn of the last century, uh, this museum acquired an actual tomb. I mean, they recreated a two-story tomb of a king named Unis Anak who died around the year 2400 BC. And this collection contains a remarkable amount of artifacts with 30 mummies and jewelry and even a 4,000-year-old boat to take a pharaoh to the afterlife via water. Of course, also, I I spent about an hour and a half taking notes and taking pictures and having a great time. When I emerged from the Field Museum, it being Sunday morning, there was a large Miller light can uh, inflated outside the entrance, and I found myself in the middle of a bear's tailgate. They They were playing the Texans that day, and it took me forever to get home, reminding me that we may not be Egyptian, but we have our own liturgies, right? Well, here are a few general ideas regarding Egyptian burial and Egyptian art. They were real into mummification. It took 70 days to do, and basically it's just taking all the moisture out of the inside of the body for the skin, which sounds a little more like taxidermy than mummification to me. The inner organs were all removed except for the heart, and they were placed in jars alongside the body. Art was believed to become the thing it represents, so that art depicting a slave or a sacrifice would continue. In the case of Unis Ankh, what they did is for about a century, they would bring the dead king food and leave it on a table. They would sacrifice a bull and leave it on a table. But in time, they had to move on to other kings, right? Other kings were mummified or if they got tired or they forgot about the king. No worries. If you had artwork pertaining, uh, portraying rather, uh, a slave and a bull, then they keep feeding him over time. So for this reason, uh, people were very carefully depicted in profile with the four torsos. Egyptian art has that funny that funny look to it because they wanted to make sure they got every detail right so that that art could become the thing. The art could become the slave, right? The God could become the God manifested as it was portrayed. The starting point for all this was the conviction that the spirit would remain with the body after death. I like to say that starting points have a lot to do with where you end up. And with this one, this would lead to elaborate and remarkable burial theology. For the Egyptians, they actually believed that the spirit had three parts or three manifestations. First of all, there was the ka, a K-A, which was the spirit that remains in the tomb with the body. And by the way, the word ka also means bull, which connects this to that saddest story for my money in the Hebrew scriptures, which is Exodus 32. Hey, I'll paraphrase just for a second. In Exodus 32, Moses is on the mountain with God, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments, which we'll say something to about in a minute. But he spends a little too much time up there. So when he comes down, he sees that God's people, uh, the people whom God has rescued from slavery and brought through the Red Sea waters into a world of freedom, uh, but dependence on God, they have created a golden calf. Now remember that Egyptian that Egyptian word for life force is also the same word for bull, and so there's a connection to this Egyptian theology here. They make their own golden calf because they believe that the golden calf would bring rain for them. It was a rain god, so there's more water in the Bible. In other words, they got out there in a world where they didn't have any water, but they had freedom. They left a world where they had water, but no freedom, which is a question, right? Would you have everything you ever wanted and not be free? Or would you go to a place where you could be dependent on God alone and breathe the sweet, clean air of God's own freedom? This way, the Exodus becomes an eternal story, not just a story about them. Well, needless to say, Moses is disgusted. He looks 
down the mountain, and there they are cavorting around a golden calf, and he does two things remarkable. We know the first one because we've seen the movie. He breaks the tablets. But the second one is found in Exodus 32, verses 19 and 20, and I'll just tell you what he does. He grinds the golden calf into dust, puts it into water, and makes them drink it. Here's your rain god. You think this golden bull is going to give you life and give you water? Here, you drink the water of the golden bull. So that's the first manifestation, ka, the spirit that remains in the tomb. Ba, B-A, which is the soul that could fly in and out. It could fly out of the tomb and could return. And then ak, which would be the soul that would travel to the underworld and face judgment. They had it all figured out. Originally, only pharaohs would undertake this journey because only pharaohs were mummified, and so that pharaohs could become deities or semi-deities in themselves. Now, <clears throat> later, in the later dynasties, and thousands of years later, actually, uh, they did this for about four, four millennia, if you will. Uh, you could also be mummified if you had the cash. It was very expensive. Now, I hope that by now, with all the story from the Egyptian the funiary theology that I know, you're beginning to see the contrast between Hebrew burial, and Egyptian burial. Remember, where you start has everything to do with where you end up going. Hebrew burial is very egalitarian. They were very hesitant, always hesitant, to describe the afterlife. If you really want to summarize the the Hebrew take on heaven, if you will, or the take on what happens after we die, I think you could paraphrase it this way. Heaven is made for mystery. Earth is is made for responsibility. Closely looking at Egyptian theology, we can also see a contrast that's baked into the first four of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Okay, we talked about Exodus 32, but let's recap what the Ten Commandments, what they are and what they mean. Writing was a technology invented about 5,000 years ago by these same water civilizations we've been discussing in living water, the same two that press upon God's people in the Bible. This would be Mesopotamia in the north and Egypt in the south. They invented writing so that they could record grain. It sort of worked like math. It was for inventory. And then later, writing was used to secure the place of the king and to proclaim the king's divinity. So writing started as a business transaction and then later became propaganda for these long, stable dynasties. The Egyptians would later then say that their art, right, their own hieroglyphics would become the thing itself. So writing was very, very important. Now, in this world, after rescue through water, after God rescued a nation of slaves, if you will, and took him out into the desert and freedom far away from Egypt, God would use this new technology, this this technology formerly owned and invented by the water dynasties, and he would create a new nation with a new king, a god over them, not a god king and not a little g god, but rather the god of heaven and earth would, would give them give them 10 ends, 10 ways of living in union with, with each other and with God, God would use writing to communicate the divine mind. How could we know what the creator of Pleiades and Orion and all the stars above our head and all the sand on the beach, how can we know what that God wants from us? God took a new technology and wrote it all down. And the first four would be concerned with our right relationship with our creator. The last six, our relationship with our neighbor. God's own words spoken and written on tablets of stone are a direct rebuke of the elaborate religion 
of the water dynasty that they left behind. Look at these carefully with what we know about Hebrew burial versus Egyptian burial. One, no other gods but me, the first commandment, which means no god king, no golden calf, no distractions, no divided loyalties. The second commandment, no graven image, which means no making art into magic, no no magic incantation, no eternal servitude, no drawing becoming the thing. Three, do not take my name in vain, which means no more incantations, no more manipulating the divine, no more magic. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath because on this day, slaves will rest just as kings will rest, just as God rests alongside them. Everyone is equal and this is a gift. Friends, I like to say that it's the same story, no matter how strange it may seem at first, but it's the same story from page one to page 1001. And the story is this, is the answer to a question. Will you be different from the world around you? That's God's eternal question for all of us. That's God's eternal intention for us. Will you be different than the world around you? Will you be different in union with God and with neighbor? Will you be different respecting the dignity of every human being? Will you be different following God alone? So that leaves us with a question. How can we be different in our world? Thanks, everybody. See you next time. We hope you've been enjoying this season of Jericho Road as Rich helps us explore the world of the Bible through the lens of living water. If you're interested in finding more ways to catch these lessons, as well as other lessons from Rich and our other clergy members here at St. Luke's, be sure to follow us on Facebook and YouTube at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, Birmingham. There you will find daily and weekly prayers and lessons, as well as live recordings of our Sunday worship services and these very Jericho Road podcasts. For those of you here in the Birmingham area, Rich also offers midweek men's and women's Bible studies. The men's Bible study meets on Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock in Graham Hall. The Women's Bible Study meets on Thursday mornings at 10.30 in the Youth Commons. We hope you'll continue to find ways to engage with us here at St. Luke's. And we look forward to seeing you next week.